0: We thank you that you've moved your servants to write it down, all those many thousand year, thousands of years ago, that we may be edified by it. We ask that you enlighten us by your truth as we gather together and study it this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Today we're going to begin the next covenant, which is the Mosaic Covenant. We just finished studying the Abrahamic Covenant. As you know, we're in the study of the covenants. And so today, we're going to begin the Mosaic Covenant, which is another way of saying the Mosaic Law, the Law of Israel. And before we begin that, I want to take you to a series of events that happened about five years ago in another state, the state of California. There are events that involve a bakery, which is also a deli and, uh, and it, they've got a storefront in Bakersfield, California. The, the name of the owner is a lady by the name of Kathy Miller and her store is named Tastery's Bakery. She's a retired school teacher and after many, many years of teaching, she always wanted to be a, a, um, have a bakery and so after re- retiring, she opened up her bakery shop. She's a Christian, and she attends a local Baptist church there in Bakersfield. In 2017, a lesbian couple walked into her store and asked her to make a wedding cake. She said, I can't do that because I'm a Christian, and her understanding, which of course is the biblical understanding, is that marriage is between one man and one woman and she referred the couple to another baker who would be able to make their cake. Within an hour, her her phone and her email blew up, full of vitriol and animosity, and ultimately the state of California filed suit against Mrs. Miller. Of course, her business suffered, and many of her employees quit within two weeks of the event, which was in 2017 and the harassment was just too much for a number of them. After years of litigation, her lawyers ultimately won in court based on First Amendment grounds, on the pre-exercise clause of the First Amendment, and I suspect her business will never be the same because it will always be a target of financial persecution. You ask, what in the world does this have to do with a Mosaic Covenant? What in the world does this have to do with a Mosaic Law? Well, believe it or not, the Mosaic Covenant came up in the litigation. The state of California brought the Mosaic Covenant up, the Mosaic Law. The lawyers for the state of California used it as a trap to lure Mrs. Miller into a trap. One of the tasking things in litigation is having to give a deposition. In a deposition you are put under oath, and the other side's lawyer is allowed to ask you whatever questions that lawyer wants to ask. The other side's lawyer is allowed to cross-examine you. And here's what the line of questioning from the state's lawyer looked like against Mrs. Miller. The attorney said this. Attorney, his name is Gregory Mann. Do you try to follow everything that the Bible says? question answer mrs miller i do my best but i'm a sinner but i do my best i love that answer by the way and then the lawyer says do you follow some of the eating practices from the old testament in terms of not eating pigs not eating shellfish etc now i didn't see the full transcript so i don't know what mrs miller's response to that was her lawyer you, you do have the ability in a deposition to to shut the deposition down and say Don't answer that question. When you're presenting your lawyer, you have that ability. So I don't know if that's what Mrs. Miller's lawyer did. You know, there are legal groups who represent people who are being persecuted from a religious standpoint, and and one of these legal groups did that for this baker. Now, we don't know what the answer was and, and, and where the line of questioning went from there, but you understand what they were doing what the state of California was doing was challenging the sincerity, the truthfulness of her religious belief. The state of California's argument was, if you eat bacon or shrimp, then you don't really believe in the Bible. Right? If you eat bacon or shrimp, then you don't really follow the Bible, Mrs. Miller. You're a hypocrite. This, this was the state of California. The full Weight and power of the state of California is behind this argument because there's, as far as I could tell, there there, there was no admonishment from the court, admonishing the lawyer for the state of California for even pursuing this. This is the argument that the state had, and... What I want you to do is uh, put aside the hypocrisy, right? I mean, the state of California regularly and consistently mocks the Bible and the idea that they would take the Bible and use it as a bludgeon against someone who was, in fact, standing on the Bible is the height of hypocrisy. I don't cite this, this case for you with respect to the hypocrisy. I cite it because I want you to understand that the Mosaic covenant, that the Mosaic law is not irrelevant. And the world uses it. Of course, the response to his question was, those provisions of the law don't apply. What this lawyer was trying to do was to beat Mrs. Miller over the head with the dietary restrictions of the Mosaic Covenant. The response is, those provisions don't apply anymore. What what I want you to understand is why. Why they don't apply. Right? We don't just say, because, because I told you so. Remember when your parents, you know, you're, you're 15 years old, and you want to do something, and, you know, maybe your parents said, no. Well, how come? Because, because I told you so. I mean, you're supposed to obey regardless, but, you know, as a 15-year-old, you're like, well, I, can I get a little more explanation than because I told you so? That's what I want you to have. I want you to have the full explanation, the full understanding of why the Mosaic Covenant is what it is and what is it and what it is not. And so in our study, we're going to see the nature and the purpose of the covenant of the law and how it fits in God's plan. I want you to understand the aspects of the law, the restrictions of the law, and how they fit and don't fit in what we live in today, which is the church age. The Mosaic Covenant is not some obscure, irrelevant thing. To be sure, church age believers are not under the law. Let me say that again. We are not under the law. We are not under the Mosaic Covenant, but that doesn't make it irrelevant. That doesn't make it unimportant. And the world is going to use it as a bludgeon. I mean, the fact that a lawyer in a deposition in the state of California would use it as a weapon against a Christian shows you that this is not something that we can just ignore. If a lawyer would use it in a deposition in a case, as a theory in his case, that means you have an entire unbelieving culture because he didn't just pull it out of his ear. No, he got it from the unbelieving culture that has a perspective with respect to the law and to the covenant. And so I want us to understand the place of the covenant, where it fits in the grand scheme of things. We need to understand what the covenant is and what it is not. First, the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, is sourced in the Abrahamic covenant, like all the covenants. All the covenants other than the Abrahamic, they all flow out of the Abrahamic Abrahamic covenant. And then the Mosaic, the Davidic, the New Covenant, they're all an outworking of the Abrahamic covenant, and all four of them, including the Abrahamic, is sourced. All four of them are sourced in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. You, we've heard this passage. We've read this passage so many times by now, you may even have it committed to memory. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Remember, the Abrahamic covenant is made up of land, seed, and blessing. God would give land to Abraham that he would enjoy during his lifetime in the land of Canaan, and then God has promised a specific, huge piece of real estate in the Middle East for the descendants of Abraham. That's land. Then seed, God would make Abraham's descendants into a great nation, and the promised seed of the woman would come through Abraham. Blessing, Abraham was blessed individually. The nation is blessed, which is where the Mosaic Covenant comes in, and we'll We'll see more of that as we go through this study. And then the world itself, all of humanity is blessed through the Abrahamic covenant, specifically through the Jews and ultimately through the Jew of Jews, Messiah. The Abrahamic covenant is the granddaddy of all the covenants because the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant are the manner in which God fulfills the land, seed, and blessing promises. And the Mosaic Covenant is specific to the blessing, the national blessing part of the Abrahamic Covenant. The Mosaic Law, or the Mosaic Covenant, is the promise that God made with Israel after he freed them from Egypt, but before he brought them into the land. It's called the Mosaic Covenant because God gave it to Israel through Moses. That's actually not that... Tricky of a title, right? I mean, that's why we call it the Mosaic Covenant, because Moses gave it to the people, and God gave it to Moses to give to the people. Sometimes it's called the Sinai, the Sinaitic Covenant, because God gave it to the people at Mount Sinai when they were in the wilderness. The Mosaic Covenant is also called the Torah or the law. Torah means the book of Moses. That's the way. That's one of the ways the term is used. The broad use of the term Torah is the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. Pentateuch is two Greek words that are squished together. Penta, five, the pentagon, right, is is a a geomet- geometrical shape of five sides or the military establishment in D.C. Penta, five, plus tukas. Tukas was a vessel that would carry scrolls so The Pentateuch is the vessel that carried the five scrolls, the first five scrolls of the Bible, the first five books of the Bible. So Torah, in a general sense, in a broad sense, means Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. If you want a a narrow use of the word Torah, sometimes it's used just to mean the Ten Commandments. If you want a super-specific use of the word Torah, it would mean from Exodus 20 through the end of the book of Deuteronomy. Exodus 20, through the end of Exodus, and Numbers and Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's a super specific use of the word Torah. And the reason I use that description of Torah is because the Ten Commandments don't show up until Exodus 20. And then they're repeated again in Deuteronomy. And so a super specific use of the word Torah would be from Exodus 20 through the last verse of the book of Deuteronomy. I should note that the law is not always used in the Bible to mean the Mosaic law. The word law doesn't always mean the Mosaic law in the scripture. Romans 8.2, for example, Paul says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Here, Paul doesn't mean the Mosaic law. He means a principle. In other words, the spirit of life establishes a different principle than does sin and death. One establishes a principle of freedom, and the other establishes a principle of bondage. So their law doesn't mean Mosaic law. It means a, a principle. Or Matthew, 15, Matthew 5, verse 18, Jesus says, Until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest Letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Literally, in the Greek, it's not the smallest iota. Iota is the smallest letter in the Greek corresponding to the Hebrew letter yod. Just a little tick. And not the smallest stroke. So, in Hebrew and in Greek, just a slight stroke on the letter changes the letter kind of for us too. I mean, you know, you can, you can change one of our letters just with a little stroke. And Jesus here is not using the law to mean the Mosaic law because he fulfilled that law. He's saying here the law is not going to... The law will remain in existence as long as the universe exists. That's what he's saying in Matthew five eighteen. He's not talking about the Mosaic law because he fulfilled that as the only human who perfectly obeyed its righteous requirements, such that all who are in him by faith are deemed to also have fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. Jesus isn't using law here to mean Mosaic law. He's using it to mean the entire Old Testament, much of which is not yet fulfilled, because the Old Testament is full of messianic kingdom provinces that have not been fulfilled yet. And Jesus is saying, the universe will remain in existence for the time period. This universe, as we know it, will remain in existence for the time period in which the promises, the the prophecies of the Old Testament remain yet unfulfilled. But once those are fulfilled, this universe will be, be obliterated. And then you go elsewhere in the Bible to learn of the new universe, the new heavens and the new earth. So, Paul used law to mean principle. Jesus uses uses law to mean the entire Hebrew Bible, the entire Old Testament. And then in John 1.17, the Apostle John says, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Here, John uses law the way we would typically think of it. He uses it to mean the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And so, for any passage, when you see the term law, often, probably even usually, it means the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible, but often it doesn't. And so, like many things, you have to look at the context in the Bible. Context, context, context. Context is king. You have to look at the context in order to determine how the term law is being used. Now, whenever you study a covenant, it's always important up front to determine the nature of the covenant. Is it conditional or is it unconditional? The Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic law, is related to God's special blessing. And as a result, it is both conditional and bilateral. It's not unconditional and unilateral. Let me show you what I mean. In the Bible, obedience always precedes blessing. Obedience always precedes blessing. No obedience, no blessing. For Abraham, he had to leave Ur of the Chaldees for the land, seed, and blessing promises that are embedded in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, to vest. For us, for church-age believers, we have to trust in Christ, which is an act of obedience, in order to receive the blessings of salvation. We have to walk in God's ways, which is an act of obedience, in order to receive the blessings of sanctification. Obedience always precedes blessing, with one exception. There's an exception with respect to general blessings versus special blessings. General blessings you could describe as common grace. That's available to all, regardless of obedience. Remember Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 45, He says that God causes his son, God's son. Don't forget that. The son that rose this morning, that's God's son. God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. With respect to common grace, no obedience is required. That blessing, the common blessing, the general blessing that that God showers on all of humanity is not conditioned on obedience. Special blessing, however is conditioned on obedience. You don't trust in Christ, you go to hell. You don't trust in Christ, you don't receive the blessing of forgiveness, the blessing of redemption, the blessing of salvation. That's special grace. That's a special blessing. The Mosaic Covenant was not a general blessing. The Mosaic Covenant is a, it was not available to all of humanity. It wasn't common grace. It was a special blessing, a special blessing act of grace for Israel. And so the blessings of the Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic law are conditioned on obedience. We can say it this way. The Mosaic covenant is very different than the Abrahamic covenant. Right? The Abrahamic covenant is unconditional and unilateral. It's one-sided. God makes the promise for the benefit of Abraham for the benefit of Israel, for the benefit of all of humanity. It's unilateral, unconditional, not conditioned on anything the Abrahamic covenant, on anything that anyone would do. It's only conditioned on God's performance. The Mosaic covenant, on the other hand, is conditional and bilateral. That means both parties have a responsibility under the covenant. In the Mosaic covenant, God says, if you do X, I will do Y. If you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. I will punish you. We'll see more of that as we go through this study. Let me talk about why God gave the Mosaic Covenant. The first reason is to reveal the holiness of God. Exodus fifteen eleven reads like this. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? O Yahweh. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? This is common language in the Bible. It's not saying that there are other gods. Don't read that to mean that there are other gods when it says, Who is like you among the gods? That's not what it's suggesting. It's saying Yahweh is greater than the so called gods. Yahweh is incomparable to the false gods because the false gods are worthless. The false gods are no gods. When Israel received the law at Mount Sinai, they had just left Egypt, a land full of false gods, a land full of idolatry. And they're about to enter the land of Canaan, another land riddled with false gods. The false gods of antiquity were immoral. The false gods of antiquity raped and murdered and stole. They fit the image of a pagan people. Right? Pagan peoples created their gods, and those gods mirrored their priorities. They mirrored the way they viewed reality, their worldview. That's what we do. That's why we create idols. The one who rebels against the living God creates an idol, and that idol is designed to confirm and validate the person who created the idol. And so the false gods of antiquity we're immoral, God says, That's not me. That's not me. That's not who I am. I'm holy. I'm righteous. And so he reveals his own righteousness through the standards, through the principles, through the precepts of the covenant, of the Mosaic covenant, of the law, where he says, Don't do what the pagans do. Don't rape. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't commit adultery, etc., etc. All of those standards that God revealed in the Mosaic Law, which hadn't been revealed before in written form, they were written in their hearts, but not recorded in terms of written scripture. All of those standards don't, 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 don't do what the pagans did. And then it's a specific list each of those reveal the holiness of God, reveal the distinction between God and the false gods who do those things. I mean, the false gods are no gods. They don't exist at all. But in the ancient mythology, they, they, they had the view that the false gods did those things. My point is that the Mosaic Covenant reveals the holiness of God. God's holiness revealed the righteous standard that the people were to meet. Leviticus 19, 2. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus 20, verse, chapter 20, verse 26. Thus you are to be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. In order for any human being, the context here are the Israelites, in order for an Israelite, to have fellowship with a holy God, the Israelite had to be holy. In order for, same thing for us, I mean, Peter makes the same statement with respect to us be holy because God is holy. In order for any human being to have fellowship with a holy, righteous God, the human being must be holy. But that begs the question. I mean, that raises the issue but we're not holy. (laughs) So how can we have fellowship with a holy, righteous God? How can we meet the standard that says be holy like I'm holy when we're not holy? And this raises the second reason why the Mosaic Law was established. The second reason is to show the Israelites that their righteousness was completely inadequate before a holy, righteous God. The Apostle Paul talked about this in Galatians 3.19 where he said, Why the law then? Why the Mosaic covenant then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. I want you to notice a few things in this passage of Galatians 3. Number one, the Mosaic covenant was added, Paul says. Added. Added to what? What's the covenant that precedes the Mosaic covenant? The Abrahamic covenant. Abrahamic covenant precedes the Mosaic covenant by almost five centuries. Abraham lives around 2,000 B.C. Moses lives around 1,500 B.C., rough, rough numbers. So the Mosaic covenant was added to the Abrahamic covenant, that which already existed, which God had given to Abraham. Because the Mosaic covenant was part of the blessing, the outworking of the blessing part of the Abrahamic covenant. Sometimes, especially in maybe in maybe in our circles, sometimes there's this view that, and 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 you know, it it, it you, you you see it sometimes. This view that grace is good and law is bad. Grace, good, law, eh. That kind of assessment. That's not accurate, actually. Because when John makes the distinction in the prologue between grace and truth and Jesus, but, but... When he makes the distinction between the law and grace and truth, between, we saw this passage earlier, between the Pentateuch and the grace and truth of Jesus, we'll see this in a little bit, or in this study. But I'll just give you, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself a little bit. But John is making the distinction, not that there was no grace and truth in the Pentateuch, and now we've got grace and truth in Jesus. He's saying there was grace and truth in the Pentateuch, but now we've got it in abundance in Jesus, the law wasn't a punishment. Sometimes we think, because we live in the age of grace, that age, that Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic law, mm, that was ugly, I'm so glad I don't live then. That was, that, that was cold and prickly, not at all. It wasn't a punishment from God, it was, it was a gracious blessing. The Torah is a gracious blessing from God. As my, my Old Testament prof used to say, Ron Allen, the Torah is God's pointed finger to the way of fellowship and, and relationship with Kim for the Israelites. Don't think of the Torah as the, uh, or think of the law, the, the, the Mosaic Covenant, as something that, that was cold and prickly. It wasn't a punishment from God for the Israelites. It was a blessing. It was a blessing for a number of reasons. As we go through the various reasons, which we're just starting today, as to, as to why the covenant was given, each of these are reasons of blessing. So when God gave the law to reveal His holiness to the people, that's an act of blessing. That's an act of grace from God to a people that has just come out of Egypt, a land full of false gods, going into a new land full of false gods of the Canaanites and the Philistines and the Moabites and all the various peoples, it's an act of blessing to, for God to give his law so that the people would know that they were inadequate before him, that they're wholly unable to meet God's holy standard, though he requires that of them, for fellowship with him, for relationship with him. So please don't think of the Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic law, the Torah, as something that is cold and prickly and bad. No, 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 no. It was an act of blessing It was an act of grace from God to the Israelites. The second thing that I want you to see about Galatians 3.19 is that the covenant was added, the Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic law, because of transgressions, because of sins. Do you see that there in the second line, into the first line in the second line? It was added because of transgressions. In other words, the purpose of the law was to show the people that they were sinners, that they had a sin problem, Right? The reason the culture thinks the gospel is a joke, our culture, the reason the world thinks the gospel is a joke and meaningless is because we don't think we have a sin problem. It's all good, baby. I'm good. What What do I need saving from? I'm golden. Do, uh, salvation, smalvation, whatever. What do I need salvation and deliverance from? Because If we don't understand that we have a sin problem, then the gospel is of no significance. It's meaningless. And so part of the gracious gift of the law was God making clear to the Israelites, and we'll see this as we go through this study, making clear to the Israelites that they had a sin problem and they need a sin solution, a solution to their problem. The third thing that I want you to see about Galatians 3.19 is that God gave the Mosaic law God gave the covenant to the people through angels. You see that here in this text? Having been ordained through angels. This is fascinating to me. There were two mediators, two middlemen that God used, two, two mediators in the giving of the covenant, in the giving of the Mosaic covenant, a human mediator and a heavenly mediator. The human mediator is Moses, and the heavenly mediator... Are the angels. The angels mediated from God to Moses, and Moses mediated from what he received from the angels to humans. Now, I'm using the term mediator here, and, and the scripture uses it in this context as a middleman, someone who was a go between. And the fact that the angels served as mediators of the law was revealed back in the law itself. Deuteronomy 33, verses 1 and 2. Now, this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the sons of Israel before his death. So this is written, you know, the Pentateuch is written by Moses. Not all of it, right? Moses doesn't write about how he died. Someone else wrote that. And so this is written by someone other than Moses. The overwhelming majority of the Pentateuch was written by Moses, though. But verse 1 of Deuteronomy 33 now, this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the sons of Israel before his death. He said, the Lord came from, Mount, came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. At his right hand, there was flashing lightning for them. The holy ones here are angelic beings who were present when God gave the law. This isn't saying that God left the third heaven and he left the angels there in the court of heaven and then he came and he gave the law to Moses. This is saying that the angels were present when God was giving the law to Moses there on Mount Sinai. They were with God. They were assisting in the giving of the law to Moses. Stephen, Stephen says the same thing. In his sermon, you remember the great sermon that he gave in Acts 7 that culminates with the religious leaders being so angry that they pick up stones and kill him on the spot. In his sermon in Acts 7, verse 53, he says the same thing. You who receive the law as ordained by angels, he's speaking to a religious audience there in Jerusalem and yet did not keep it. The writer of Hebrews also speaks of this in Hebrews 2.2. The word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. Hebrews 2.2. 2. Why do we care? Why is it significant that God gave the Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic law through angels, that he used angels, and not just angels as a mediator, but a man, Moses, as a mediator, It's significant because it shows us the difference between the Mosaic Covenant and the Abrahamic Covenant. There's a huge difference. The Abrahamic Covenant covenant is eternal, and so the one who is eternal issued it directly to Moses. The Eternal One, God, Almighty God, came and gave the Abrahamic Covenant, not to Moses, to Abraham, gave the Abrahamic Covenant to Abraham directly, not through intermediaries, not through angels, Directly in Genesis 12 verses 1 through 3, directly to Abraham's son, Isaac, directly to Abraham's grandson, Jacob, God himself performed the ritual, that ritual in Genesis 15 that we saw with the animal carcasses that were, were cut in half, and the normal way the ritual was done is the, is the two men would walk through the carcasses together, but Abraham is asleep, and God walks through the carcass. Not... Not that God has feet and legs to be able to walk. It was a theophany, a physical manifestation of the invisible God. God does it himself is the point. Not with any intermediaries, no mediators. But with the Mosaic Covenant, God uses middlemen. With the Mosaic Covenant, God uses both angels and Moses to mediate, to reveal the law to people. Because the Mosaic Covenant is not as important as the Abrahamic covenant. It's not that it's unimportant. It's not that it's irrelevant. It's just the Abrahamic covenant is eternal. And the Mosaic covenant is temporary. It had its place, and then it was fulfilled. It's not that it's irrelevant. It's that it's not as significant and important, still important, but not as important as the covenant that was and is eternal, the Abrahamic covenant. Right now, we're in this this outline that we're going through this morning. We're in the second reason for the law, which was to show the Israelites that their righteousness was inadequate. The law was to reveal to the Israelites that their righteousness was inadequate to have a relationship with God, to have fellowship with God, And so when the Pharisees come along and teach that the law was a means of salvation, it was false teaching, false teaching of the highest order. This is why Jesus gets angry, angry, visibly angry with the Pharisees. Of course, angry without sinning, something that is incredibly difficult for us to do, that we are told to do. But usually when we're angry, we're sinning. Not for Jesus. Jesus gets angry with the Pharisees, because they are teaching incredibly, incredibly false doctrine. Salvation has always been by grace through faith in every age. That's how Abraham was saved roughly 500 years before the law, Genesis 15, 6. Then he, Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he, the Lord, reckoned it to him as righteousness. What did he believe about the Lord? Did he trust in Jesus? No. There was no Jesus. At least, not the incarnate Jesus. What was the content of Abraham's faith in Genesis 15-6? We're not told. Abraham believed in the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness, reckoned to him as righteousness. But we don't know the content of the faith. Salvation is always by grace through faith. In what God has revealed about Himself in that era, God has revealed that He is God in the flesh, Jesus. And so, in this era, the content of grace by faith, the content of our faith, is trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and receiving of eternal life. The content of the faith in the Lord was different. 4,000 years ago when Abraham lived, right? Because not that much, not as much revelation about God had been given in that era as is given now. Now, Abraham did know about Yahweh. He did know that Yahweh saves. He did know that Yahweh raises from the dead, I mean, that was part of the content of his faith. The reason I say he knew that that Yahweh raises from the dead is because that's what the writer of Hebrews says when God told Abraham to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, and Abraham was prepared to do it, and then God holds him back. The writer of Hebrews says that Abraham reasoned that God will simply raise him from the dead. So Abraham understood that God raises the dead. He understood That God saves, but we don't know the full content of his faith in the Lord back from 4,000 years ago. What we know is that in every age, salvation is always by grace through faith. In Galatians 3, Paul explains the significance of Abraham's faith. Galatians 3, 6. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's our passage from Genesis 15, 6. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. Where have we heard that? Genesis 12, 3, right? That's the last part. That's the universal blessing part of the Abrahamic covenant. They're at the end of Genesis 12, 3. So then, I keep reading in in Galatians 3, 9. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. You see, Paul links our faith with Abraham's faith. Our faith in Jesus is consistent with Abraham's faith in Yahweh, And all of this is the unfolding of the universal blessing part of the Abrahamic covenant, which we've already studied. My point is that the Scripture interconnects. The Scripture interrelates. It connects with itself because there's one author of the Scripture, capital A, God the Holy Spirit, who used somewhere around 40 different human authors to record 66 books in three different languages, on three different continents, over a period of roughly 1,500 years. You want to talk about miracles? That's a miracle. And we still have it. That's a miracle. Before Xerox machines, and Internet, and phones, we just click. I got a whole image of that document right there on my phone. and the message of the scripture isn't hey this guy wrote about that and that guy wrote about that you know so it's like if you if you put 40 lawyers in a room or 40 doctors or 40 engineers or 40 school teachers in a room and said okay i want you each to write something well they're going to write on what they want to write about and sometimes those things are going to be in conflict i assure you it will be with respect to the lawyers But here we have a book that interconnects, that has the same theme from beginning to end, over the f- all forty different authors, human authors. Creation, the fall, redemption, and God's coming kingdom. Now, there's subsets within each of those four parts of the meta-narrative of the Bible. But that's the constant, consistent. Theme, right? Paul writes two thousand years after his great 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 grandfather Abraham, because Paul's a Jew, a descendant of Abraham, right? He writes two thousand years after Abraham lived, and fifteen hundred years after Moses recorded these things in Genesis with respect to Abraham, and it all fits together. It all fits together like a hand in a glove. One more reason why we know that the law was never intended as a means of salvation is because the generation who received the law were already saved. Let me say that again. The generation of Israelites that received the law were already saved. I'll show you that in a moment. But think about it. How do you give something to someone so that they will be saved if they're already saved? That dog don't hunt. That doesn't work. And the Scripture makes this point. The New Testament makes this point. That the law wasn't a means of salvation ever because the Israelites were already... The generation of Israelites who received it were already saved. The vast majority of them had already trusted in Yahweh before Mount Sinai. Before God began to give the law at Mount Sinai. They believed... When they saw what God did to the Egyptians, their faith is recorded in Exodus 14. Exodus 14:31. 14, when Israel saw the great power which Yahweh had used against the Egyptians, the people feared Yahweh, and they believed in Yahweh and in His servant Moses. The Hebrew word for believe here is the Hebrew word aman, the hiphil stem of the Hebrew verb aman. It's the same verb and the same stem that is used in Genesis 15.6 Abraham amand in the hifil stem the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness the Israelites trusted in the Lord because they saw him work because they saw what the Lord does they saw him humiliate the most powerful man on the planet, Pharaoh who mocked God, who worshipped other gods other than Yahweh, their God. They saw him humiliate the most powerful army on the face of the planet at that time, the Egyptian army. In fact, the humiliation was so intense that the Egyptians said, go, get out, go, lest we all die. That's what it says in Exodus. They urged them to leave. And you know what? Take our gold and take our silver. Just go, leave us. Because when the Israelites asked them for gold and silver and precious things like God told them to do, they said, here you go. Because it was payback for four centuries of slavery. It was their compensation. It was deferred compensation, you might call it. So the Israelites, that generation, the Exodus generation, saw the mighty hand of Almighty God, Yahweh, humiliate the powers of the Egyptians, the gods, the false gods of the Egyptians. And so that generation believed in Yahweh. When Pharaoh changed his mind and sent his chariots and charioteers after the Israelites and God parted the sea and had the Israelites walk on dry dry ground and then he closed the sea up and drowned all of the Israelites excuse me, all of the Egyptians, the Israelites observed this with their eyes. And this is why they amand. This is why they believed. They trusted in. They relied upon. That's what aman in the hiphil stem means. This is why they exercised faith in Yahweh. In fact, the faith of that generation is recorded in the hall of faith. In Hebrews 11, 11, 29, by faith, They, the Exodus generation, passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land, and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. I'm not saying that the Exodus generation were sinless. No, they were a mess. They were a mess. I'm not saying they were sinless. I'm saying they were saved. There's a difference. I'm saying that by and large, they were saved. It doesn't mean that 100% of them were believers. It means that the vast majority of them were believers by Exodus chapter 14, where we see Exodus 14, 31. And God doesn't give them the law, the Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant, until Exodus 19 and 20. If you want to include 19 in there, where, they, where they're introduced to God at Mount Sinai. And Moses says... Don't touch the mountain or you're going to die. Take a bath, cleanse yourself, sanctify yourself, because in the morning you're going to meet God. And the mountain is full of smoke and trembling. That's Exodus 19. And then in Exodus 20, it begins with the Ten Commandments, and then the law goes on and on and on from there. They were saved four chapters earlier, five chapters earlier than the law. Since the people were already saved when they received the law at Sinai, no one should ever have thought that the law was a means of salvation, and certainly not the experts in Jesus' day, the Pharisees. This is the beginning of our study of the Mosaic Covenant, and we'll see more of it next Sunday. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you enlighten us with it, implant it in our souls. Help us not forget it. Help us not ignore it, but plant it deep in our souls, in our souls, that we may approach you in wonder and awe, that we may be impressed at you and your word and your ways, so that we may bring honor to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.